All right. Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. And as I am ranting tonight on the evening of January 11th, 2020, fortunately, there seems to be a certain sense of anti-climax because a week ago, we were all scared shitless. <laughs> and we aren't out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. But there is a certain sense that we are back from the brink, to mix metaphors. So uh, this kind of vindicates my um, contention that, uh, you know, the U.S. and Iran are um, playing a great game and that uh, either side actually intends to push things to the ultimate consequences. Now, things could nonetheless get pushed to the ultimate consequences. I certainly do not put it past Donald Trump to blunder into a war with Iran through poorly played brinkmanship. But um, uh, assuming that there is, in fact, some method to his madness, I don't think that he is actually looking for a war with Iran. And when I say great game, of course, you know, this was the famous phrase which was coined by the British diplomat Lord Curzon going back, uh, oh, more than 120 years ago now <clears throat> for the whole contest for control of Central Asia that was being played out in the 19th century between the British and Russian empires. And uh, neither side could actually afford to go to war with the other. Again, they couldn't actually push things to the ultimate consequences. So they were each trying to establish Afghanistan as a, um, as a buffer state to protect against the other, the British in the Indian subcontinent and the, and the Russians in Central Asia, and trying to groom proxy forces on the ground and play this game of, of you know, brinkmanship and, and, and bluffing but not actually take things to the ultimate consequences of going to war. And it was a very, very bloody game, but it didn't actually result in the British and Russian empires going to war, which would have been far bloodier and not a game. So uh, similarly, you know, I think it's pretty clear that what's been going on for the past 10 years at least is that um, the U.S. and Iran have been similarly playing a game for control of the Persian Gulf region and the greater Middle East, and each of them trying to uh, establish firm control of Iraq as a buffer state against the other. Now, unlike the British and Russian empires, of course, the, uh, the U.S. and Iran are not, you know, more or less equivalent powers. Obviously, the United States is the most powerful military empire on the planet. And uh, Iran is a regional power. It's not a global power, but it's a significant regional power. And in the context of, uh, you know, the, the greater Middle East and the Persian Gulf region, it's definitely one of the major players. So, uh, you know, each side has been trying to establish uh, Iraq as a proxy state and a buffer against the other and playing a great game but not actually intending to push things to the ultimate consequences of a direct war between the U.S. and Iran. Now, I will grant you that with somebody as, um, frankly, irrational and out of control as Donald Trump at the helm of the American empire, 
the risk that it could actually escalate to a direct war with Iran is heightened. Absolutely. And in any event, this game that the two sides are playing is a very dangerous game. And it's a very high stakes game. But in the end, it's still a game. So while I am greatly relieved that we now appear to be at least a few steps back from the brink of utter disaster, I'm not entirely surprised. Now, on my blog, countervortex.org, I've been maintaining a litany of all of these respected political commentators out there who, going back more than 15 years now, have been repeatedly predicting that any day there's going to be a U.S. or Israeli military attack on Iran. Jeffrey Goldberg, Scott Ritter, Webster Tarpley, General David Petraeus, the Israeli historian Benny Morris. I've heard these predictions over and over and over again for 15 years, and it hasn't happened. And isn't it interesting that every time one of these figures makes this prediction, you know, then uh, it gets lots of play and they get written up in the Atlantic in the case of Jeffrey Goldberg. And, you know, everybody shares it on Facebook and everybody waxes all paranoid. And then it doesn't happen. And, you know, these people never actually come back and say, oops, I got it wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I acknowledge I got it wrong. You know, they never come back and actually publicly eat their crow. And in fact, you know, a few months down the line, they're making the same uh, prediction again. And once again, it gets big media play and everybody's sharing it on Facebook and everybody's getting all paranoid. And there isn't any acknowledgement that they made the same prediction a few months ago and it didn't happen. So, you know, I don't make predictions. I just try to, uh, you know, provide some analysis and actually understand events as they are unfolding rather than, uh, you know, making predictions. I'm with Yogi Berra. I don't make predictions, especially about the future. I'm not going to join the, uh, you know, the chicken little crowd with Jeffrey Goldberg and Benny Morris and Webster Tarpley and the rest of these guys. So uh, all of that said, you know, over the, uh, the course of the past, how long has it been now? A week and change since the U.S. targeted assassination of Qasem Soleimani the commander of the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guards Quds Force was killed by a targeted assassination, U.S. drone strike in Baghdad. I've been scared. I mean, you know, we've all actually, you know, we've been scared. And yes, despite my viewing the whole thing as a great game, I have actually been scared because uh, this time it looked like, you know, maybe there was really a possibility that the U.S. was going to actually blunder into a war with Iran. And certainly uh, with Trump's absolutely barbaric threat to, you know, bomb Iranian cultural sites set an absolutely criminal precedent. And if heaven forbid, you know, it had actually happened or, you know, as I say, we're not out of the woods yet. It could yet actually happen. Every possibility that Russia could come to Iran's defense and it could really escalate fast even to the unthinkable. So... I am by no means minimizing the risks here. And certainly, let me start out by saying that I do not support targeted assassinations. Targeted assassinations by drone strike are a form of extrajudicial execution, and they are illegal, in addition to, in this case, being absolutely criminally reckless. That said, it would have been better for all concerned if Qasem Soleimani had been brought up on international war crimes charges 
and faced justice at the International Criminal Court at The Hague because he was definitely a war criminal. And more to say about that later. Trump is also a war criminal. Both of them are war criminals. Or case in Soleimani was until 10 days ago when he was killed. <clears throat> the other war criminal is still in power. But in any event, before I uh, get to some analysis about Qasem Soleimani and what he actually represented, because there's been an awful lot of nonsense on both sides, both from his detractors and his defenders, there's been a lot of nonsense, and I'm going to be uh, deconstructing some of that nonsense. First, let's just, you know, make note of um, what actually happened. Obviously, Iran was going to have to retaliate for his killing to save face. But it appears that when Iran actually did retaliate, bombing al-Assad military base in, um, in Iraq, where U.S. forces are housed, uh, they specifically did it in such a way as to not actually hit any U.S. forces. It appears that the Iranian regime actually tipped off the Iraqi regime before the airstrikes happened and informed them that they were about to happen. And the Iraqi regime is, you know in the great game, it's kind of playing both sides. It's kind of equidistant between, between Tehran and Washington. So, uh, I mean, obviously Tehran knew that the Iraqi regime, the Baghdad regime, was going to turn around and inform Washington that the airstrikes were about to happen, and Washington pulled its troops out of harm's way beforehand, and Iran bombed a bunch of empty airfields, basically. And so they get to um, save face they get to say, yeah, we actually retaliated for um, the killing of Soleimani. And uh, the Trump administration now, because no actual U.S. troops were killed, gets to, uh, you know, just impose more sanctions on Iran. And, you know, there were already plenty of sanctions on Iran, so a few more don't make that much of a difference. And actually not this time around yet escalate to actual military retaliation on Iran. So we appear to be back from the brink. And like I say, you know, I mean, it vindicates the analysis that it's actually a game. Again, it's a dangerous game and it's a high stakes game. But in the end, it's a game. And, you know, there's a possibility that it could go over the edge and cease to be a game and become entirely too real. But I don't think that's what either side actually intends. And a part of the reason for that, a part of the reason that neither side intends to actually push things to the ultimate consequences is that the U.S. and Iran have a common enemy in Iraq, which is ISIS and Sunni insurgents, generally. And what neither side wants to admit is that they are actually de facto allies in Iraq. They're both backing the same allied regime. They're both a part of the, uh, you know, the, the same war effort against ISIS. So... Uh, there's too much of a commonality of interest here for either of them to really want to go to war with the other. I will point out that both sides, both Iran and the United States, in pursuing this war against ISIS and Sunni insurgents, have committed horrific war crimes and atrocities. The United States, particularly since Trump took over, but before under Obama as well, because it actually started under Obama, virtually destroyed the cities of Raqqa in Syria and Mosul in northern Iraq, which were held by, by ISIS, virtually bombed those cities into rubble, taking a horrific toll in civilian casualties. 
And, you know, this could only have been cheered by Qasem Soleimani, who, particularly in the case of Mosul, was actually leading the Shiite militia forces on the ground, which were fighting ISIS for control of that city at the same time that the U.S. was bombing it. And in less explicit alliance with the United States, shall we say, Soleimani has also maintained a force of thousands of Revolutionary Guard troops in Syria, plus an extended network of allied Shiite militias, which similarly have been carrying out in both countries, in both Iraq and in Syria, have been carrying out countless atrocities, summary executions, massacres, and particularly in the case of Syria, what can only be called sectarian cleansing, where the Sunni inhabitants of regions which have been taken by, uh, you know, pro-government forces, Iran-backed pro-government forces, um, have come under the control of these Iran-backed Shiite militia networks, and the abandoned properties of the displaced Sunnis have been, you know, taken over by these Shiite and often Iranian militia commanders. So, uh, you know, a massive um, usurpation of lands, which has been going on. Absolutely horrific war crimes have been carried out by Qasem Soleimani and his allied forces in both Iraq and in Syria, which is why, and this is the part that really, really gets to me, all of this talk about how Qasem Soleimani is a, or was a terrorist who was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans, is just hideously racist and absolutely reeks of imperial narcissism, as if the only lives that matter are those of Americans. And this logic is accepted by left, right, and center. Okay, the Trump administration and its mouthpieces in places like Fox have been making a big deal about how Qasem Soleimani was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans, the claims that he was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans. And, you know, the the so-called alternative or left-wing media, and I've seen headlines to this effect in places like The Progressive, Common Dreams, etc., have all been, you know, sort of coming to the defense of Soleimani and saying that, you know, no, actually there isn't any evidence that he was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans. Now, That's actually plausible. I personally think it's unlikely that Soleimani was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans. Because like I say, Iran and the U.S. have largely been de facto allies in Iraq. (laughs) And, you know, they've both been fighting Sunni insurgents. So I don't see where there would be any great opportunity for Soleimani to have, you know, been responsible for uh, the deaths of hundreds of Americans in Iraq. I agree with that analysis by and large, but it's missing a very, very, very critical and much larger point is that whether or not Qasem Soleimani was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans, he was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis and Syrians. And it seems that by the logic of the left, the right, and the center, Arab lives don't matter. The lives of, of, you know, the... Certainly many thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of Iraqis and Syrians that were killed by Qasem Soleimani and his allied forces on the ground in Iraq and Syria, those lives don't matter. And shamefully, 
this precise same, you know, imperial narcissist logic, as I call it, is, you know, embraced by the left or alternative media as well as by the right and the mainstream media. Because they all agree on making the only issue whether or not Qasem Soleimani was responsible for, uh, you know, the deaths of hundreds of Americans. And, you know, in calling him a terrorist, that is missing the point. Because, you know, the word terrorist or terrorism, the way they are used in um, mainstream discourse in the West is, you know, the implication is that, you know, it's somebody who wants to actually, you know, blow up, uh, you know, soft targets in the West and actually carry out, you know, attacks in, uh, in Western countries, in Europe and the United States, et cetera. Okay. So calling him a terrorist is actually being too soft on him. It's an understatement. Qasem Soleimani was something worse than a terrorist. He was a war criminal. And by calling him a terrorist, you're actually cutting him slack. Now, since Soleimani was assassinated, you know, we've all seen these uh, images and footage of the massive rallies in Iran, which are, you know, mourning him and glorifying him and decrying his assassination. It has to be kept in mind, okay, that these are state-sponsored rallies, okay? I mean, these are, you know rent the crowds to a large extent. I don't doubt that there's a certain amount of um, the populace in Iran which genuinely glorified Soleimani and saw him as, you know, their savior against ISIS and Sunni extremism. But there is also undoubtedly a substantial and probably greater slice of the Iranian populace that saw him as an oppressor and the mastermind of a paramilitary network which has been carrying out deadly repression within Iran as well as within Iraq and Syria. And it's interesting that, you know, in the, uh, you know, the, the past couple of months, in the whole prelude to the assassination, there was a massive uprising in Iran, which we previously noted on this podcast, you know, a part of the general uh, uprising against um, economic austerity, which has been going on in several places around the world, for the past several months now, from Chile to Lebanon to Iraq. So both Iran and Iraq have seen tremendous anti-regime protests over the course of the past uh, several months leading up to, uh, you know, this recent escalation. And the uprising in Iran was put down with absolutely horrific repression, certainly hundreds killed by the security forces, by the high estimates, a thousand or more. And similarly, the anti-regime protesters in Iraq have been repeatedly massacred by the same Shiite militia networks which have been overseen by Qasem Soleimani. So all of these, you know, <clears throat> so-called anti-war, quote-unquote, misleaders and charlatans here in the United States, most particularly the Answer Coalition, who have been, you know, abjectly glorifying Qasem Soleimani as, you know, a hero of the people and an anti-imperialist freedom fighter and blah, 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 blah. All I can say to you guys is don't pretend that you support the Iraqi protesters if you are portraying Soleimani as some kind of an anti-imperialist hero. Because he oversaw the same militia forces which have been serially massacring the Iraqi protesters. So... By glorifying Soleimani, you are betraying the Iraqi protesters. You are spitting right in their faces. 
And hearteningly, since the assassination of Soleimani, the protesters in Iraq have continued to mobilize. And this time they've actually been taking up the, the slogan, no to Iran, no to America, and decrying what they see as a dual occupation of Iraq by the U.S. and Iran. And we, anti-war forces, and here I am using the word without quotation marks, we legitimate anti-war forces here in the United States and in the West should be seeking our leadership from them. We should be taking our line from the Iraqi protesters who have been raising the slogan, no to Iran, no to America, because that is the only morally consistent position. And uh, it is really, really critical that we do not be confused, okay, by Trump's utterly hypocritical pretense of support for the protesters in Iran. And I say pretense of support because if you need any further evidence that it is a mere pretense, you need only compare Trump's stance towards the protesters on the Iranian side of the Shat al-Arab and those on the Iraqi side of the border, where Trump is making, you know, this big show of support for the protesters in Iran at the same time that he has been in a de facto alliance with Iran against the protesters in Iraq. Do you get it? This is a game. This is a cynical, dangerous game that both sides are playing, and it is absolutely critical that we do not let it confuse us. We should be supporting the protesters in Iraq, and we should be supporting the protesters in Iran. Regardless of the confused and hypocritical stance of the Trump White House, our opposition to airstrikes on Iran must be in solidarity with the people of Iran, not the tyrannical government that is oppressing the people of Iran. And our opposition to airstrikes on Iran must be in explicit support of the struggle of the people of Iran against the government that is oppressing them. And the more the anti-war forces are silent on the Iranian protesters, or worse than silent, actually making excuses for or denying the repression of the Iranian protesters, the greater the likelihood that Trump will be able to win the support of at least some of the Iranian protesters by posing as their protector, which could be to potentially disastrous political results if, in fact, a revolutionary situation emerges in Iran, which there is every possibility could happen in the year 2020. Now, ever since the Arab Revolution broke out in 2011 and spread nearly throughout the Arab world and also to Iran, beginning in Tunisia, quickly spreading to Egypt, Libya, Yemen, Syria, and now all these years later, really continuing now, particularly in uh, Lebanon and Iraq, there has sort of been a, um, a contest, you could say, between two trajectories across the greater Middle East region. And one is towards regional revolution, which could even potentially escalate to, <laughs> knock on wood or inshallah, global revolution as we actually begin to see the beginnings of, flickers of, the potentialities there back in 2011, where the Arab Revolution directly inspired the anti-austerity protests in Greece 
the indignados in Spain and ultimately Occupy Wall Street in the United States. The other rival trajectory, as it were, has been towards war and the great powers jumping on board and grooming proxies on the ground and exploiting the situation, pitting the populace against each other on sectarian grounds. The first big step towards that was, of course, with the NATO intervention in Libya, and then much more horrifically with everything which has happened in Syria over the past years with multiple foreign powers getting on board, grooming proxy forces on the ground, militarily intervening, and again, pitting the population against each other on sectarian basis. The United States, Russia, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and quite significantly, Iran. And, uh, you know, of course, once all these regional powers are on board and involved in the conflict and have actually got their military forces on the ground and in the air in Syria, there's every possibility that even if that is not their intention, and I believe that it is not anybody's intention, they could wind up, uh, you know, in a skirmish with each other and, uh, you know, it could escalate from there and we could, you know, find ourselves in a 1914 type situation and it could actually escalate the world war in spite of the fact that the world powers only see themselves as playing a game and not actually intending to push things to the ultimate consequences. So uh, our responsibility as revolutionaries, if we have the chutzpah enough to aspire to be revolutionaries, is to um, do all we can to fan the flames of revolution and to loan what support we can to that first trajectory towards revolution and the sweeping away of all of the corrupt and unpopular regimes in the region, despite whatever cynical and hypocritical games are being played by the global powers and whatever stance the global powers or posture the global powers are affecting regarding those revolutionary movements. That should not be a part of our accounting. We should be supporting revolutionary movements on the ground in places like Iran and Iraq and Syria on their merits rather than on the basis of the positions that the great powers are taking, rather than on the positions that, you know, Trump and the White House and the neocons and whoever are taking. Because if we opt for the latter, we're essentially letting the White House and Trump and the neocons and et cetera do our thinking for us. We aren't actually analyzing. We aren't acting. We are reacting. And we are letting them do our thinking and analysis for us by merely flipping on its head whatever their position is every bit as much as if we were merely accepting whatever their position is. And in supporting the revolutionary forces on the ground, in spite of whatever hypocritical positions are taken by the great powers, we should also be opposing any military escalation by the great powers. And again, doing all we can to feed the energies which are fueling that first trajectory towards regional and, inshallah, global revolution. And doing everything we can to be a counter-vortex against that other trajectory. A counter-friction against the machine, as Thoreau put it, against that other trajectory, which is towards regional and potentially world war. 
So I am not going to be joining any hypocritical pseudo-anti-war rallies led by the likes of International Answer, where war criminals are glorified like Qasem Soleimani. I want to see the emergence of an anti-war effort, which is in solidarity with the people of Iran, not the government of Iran, in solidarity with people, not with states, and in solidarity with the people of Iran, both in terms of their right not to be bombed by U.S. imperialism and in their struggle against the tyrannical, austerity-imposing, clerical regime that has been oppressing them since 1979. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. This has been The Counter Vortex with Bill Weinberg. Check us out online, where every fact that I have mentioned in this podcast rant is amply documented, countervortex.org. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. Rant on you next time.